All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm your host, Ben Domenech. You can email us, as always, at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. I'm happy to be joined once again today by Eric Kaufman. He is a professor of politics at Birkbeck University of London and author of White Shift, Immigration, Populism, and the Future of White Majorities. Eric, thanks so much for taking the time to join us again today. Ben, great to be on again. So I have been looking forward to this conversation because I have a bunch of questions for you about the things that we've learned from the election of 2020. But let me just set it up as a frame here for a moment. Um, as we are talking today, uh, it looks like uh, Democrats have won uh, 221 seats out of the U.S. House. Uh, Republicans have won 209. There's about five seats there that are still uh, you know, uncalled or uh, a question mark around them. Uh, in four out of those five, Republicans lead, meaning that the likeliest uh, outcome in terms of, you know, understanding that there are recounts in some of these instances would be a situation where uh, Democrats have the smallest majority they've ever had under Speaker Nancy Pelosi, um, a mere, uh, you know, a 213 to 222 uh, majority, something that no analysts ahead of this election expected. Uh, virtually every analyst had expected that Democrats uh, were going to win the U.S. Senate uh, as well. Um, they obviously have failed to do so yet. They would need to sweep both of these uh, Georgia runoffs in order to do so. Uh, and, of course, we all know the expectations that were built in about uh, the success of Vice President, uh, uh, former Vice President Biden, uh, that he was in many polls leading by double digits uh, across the country, that he was leading in, in virtually every swing state uh, that was out there with the possible exception of North Carolina in terms of its his average performance in, in the real clear politics average and, uh, and in other averages as well. This was all supposed to set up a blue wave uh, that didn't show up. So having looked at the various uh, outcomes in question here, Eric, what is your overall takeaway of why that didn't happen? Well, basically, I mean, the first point is that the polling miss is worse this time than in 2016 when everyone was talking about it. So, I mean, the real, I think the uh, average was about 8.5 8 points for Biden, and it wound up the popular vote is going to be somewhere between three and four points. So that's a miss of, you know, four to five points compared to, you know, maybe one and a half points last time. So this is a bigger miss. That's the first thing. The second thing that you really notice is which demographics that the pundits really got wrong. And the one that jumps out when you look at the exit poll data and you compare it to the pre-election is white college voters. So the narrative kind of was going like this. It's you know, educated, white educated uh, groups uh, are really swinging against Trump. They're really disgusted with him. Uh, it's only his uneducated base that's sticking with them. And that was sort of the narrative. And, and the polls were kind of reflecting that prior to the uh, results. So I think this is quite interesting. Why is it that white college graduates are the group that the pollsters got wrong? And, and just to put it, give you a sense of how much they got it wrong, essentially they got this group wrong by something like 20 points. Whereas the non-college whites, they didn't get wrong by that much. Um, and, and coincidentally, this is, is, is exactly the group that reports in surveys that they are most reluctant to express their views to friends and colleagues, that they are most concerned that if their views became known at work, they might suffer 
from a career point of view. I mean, there was a Cato uh, survey, which I know you published some results in the Federalist from Emily Elkins, uh, really found quite fascinating that uh, Republican identifiers with postgraduate degrees, 60% of them said that they feared for their career if their views became known. And it's sort of something like 45% for all white college grads compared to only about 23% for Democrats. So you've got this really sort of call it a shy Trump group, uh, which is concentrated amongst the well-educated, concentrated in blue districts that is going to be much more reluctant uh, to express their views to pollsters. And this is what I think really throw, throws the polls out this time. You know, I think that that's a, such a, a difficult situation in terms of a setup uh, going forward for the polling industry, because it's not just like there was one aspect of it that was wrong. They were wrong in so many different ways that I'm not sure how you can correct for it, especially when the core difficulty you're having is that this very significant uh, you know, portion of the electorate, not just uh, based on how many of them there are, but based on where they're located, is basically paranoid about being honest with you. <laughs> how, I mean, how do you how do you get past that? As as I mean, I, I know that you're you're not a pollster, but you pay a ton of attention to them and you analyze them. You know, what is the way of getting beyond a barrier that seems to have really taken hold in a much deeper way than we appreciated prior to this election? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, there were a couple of uh, researchers from the University of Southern California. I don't know if you picked up this story in Politico. I just just ran across it after my I wrote my piece in Unheard. Um, and what they ask, first of all, they've got a, a running survey that's mainly asking people about innocuous things like health and time use and things that are not related to politics. Uh, and they'll chuck every so often a few questions on, on politics on there. So people are less kind of wary that, oh, this is a polling firm and ooh, I don't, I maybe don't like these people because they, they got it, they don't like us, they got it badly wrong last time. Well, what they do is they don't ask people who they're going to vote for. They ask people what their friends and neighbors, who their friends and neighbors are likely to vote for. And they seem to get a lot closer <laughs> to the result. And they've gotten a lot closer to the result um, in, in cases like Ron DeSantis in Florida in 2018, which the pollsters all missed. Um, and, and just by asking this question, not you, but your neighbors and your friends. So someone might say, well, I'm not going to vote for Trump. But yeah, yeah, my neighbors will. I think that might be a method that pollsters might want to look at. Mm -hmm. There was one interesting uh, question that I saw uh, from a, a researcher, a firm that hasn't made their research public yet, I don't think. Uh, but it was it was this funny uh, combination of questions where it was, uh, do you know anyone who you believe might be a supporter of of the president or the Republican Party, but would be uncomfortable having that known about them. And then for the yes answers, they asked them, does that describe you? <laughs> <laughs> which, which I think is kind of a funny setup in terms of, of uh, getting some answers. And they had a significant portion of people say yes. So it, one of the things that I think we're gonna be digging into with this is just how much this has affected the, the shifts of the cohorts that parties are trying to appeal to. Uh, and that's obviously been a major part of, of your work in White Shift and, and elsewhere. And I want to get up to your Unheard article in a minute. But if if you're looking at this election, 
uh, through the, you know, the lens of, of all these different shifts that you've been tracking in, in populism, on immigration policy, on attitudes towards uh, the, the economy and, and, and uh, a feeling of, of an inadequacy, let's say, on the part of traditional neoliberal globalist approach to, to uh, uh, running it. Do you view this election as being one that is defined by the persona of Donald Trump um, and, that, and that only kind of is limited to that? Or do you view it as part of a trend line that is happening, you know, not just in America, but around the world, one that is, you know, is much beyond kind of the personality of this, yes, larger than life reality TV star who got elected president, you know, but also someone who I think almost prevents people from studying the underlying factors that are going in there. Yeah, I mean, I do think that the underlying dynamic, which is a shift away from the mainly left-right economic questions, lower tax, more spending, etc., towards the cultural, what some have called the open-closed divide, I would call it the faster-slower-change divide. Uh, you know, that is ongoing. Now, I think people are focusing a lot on personalities like Trump's, um, and COVID is actually massively, a, you know, what COVID actually does is it sets populism back. We're seeing this in Europe, the AFD in Germany and Salvini in Italy. And, you know, so all of the populists are doing a little bit worse because what a pandemic does is it makes you focus on technical matters, vaccines and healthcare, and then the economy, re you know, reviving the economy. It's a place for technocrats more than populists. Um, but I think what people are failing to lose sight of is the fact that let us, you know, assuming the pandemic kind of fades away with a vaccine, assuming the economy sort of begins to come back pretty well, immigration starts to flow again. And, and that's the key is once people are getting a little more secure about the economy and immigration starts to rise, globalization starts to rise, then we're going to be right back, I would say, where we were in the 2014-16 period. The conditions are going to be right for this very strong reemergence. Um, so I think people are kidding themselves if they think this underlying structural dynamics has gone away. Tell me a little bit about your perspective on what's been going on in the UK during this, because obviously, you know, uh, Boris Johnson viewed as a different kind of populist in certain respects. Um, has had to navigate this element as well, uh, this moment in which, uh, as you say, the technocratic, more, you know, let's say, uh, uh, traditional forms of authority have reasserted themselves in a lot of ways um, during this this uh, rise of populism. How do you think he's uh, succeeded and failed in, in navigating this moment? Well, I think he's got a reasonable job in the sense that he has, I mean, he's been fairly reactive. He hasn't really led with a vision, and that is a knock. He was a bit slow on the whole BLM statue toppling stuff that was going on here. He eventually got a hold of it, but was seen to be somewhat, in, you know, somewhat weak in his direction. I think that, again, what I would say is that even now at the sort of height of the pandemic, the economy is, is on the rocks. He's polling pretty level with labor. You know, it's not as though he's he's underwater. And I think going forward with an economic recovery, with the pandemic fading, I think the fundamentals are very much on his side. As Similarly to the U.S. in the sense that it's not only how well he's doing the popular vote, but 
where that popular vote is distributed, he's doing very well in the equivalent of the blue wall, what we call the red wall, um, these sort of ex-industrial northern English seats, um, which switched from voting for the from the left to the conservatives last election as a result of them being strong Brexit areas. I think that's pretty baked in, and I think that's going to continue. To me, the bigger question in, in Britain will be what happens with Nigel Farage's new populist party, and there's another populist party that's sprung up uh, on culture wars issues, uh, by, which is led by an actor, um, Lawrence Fox. What happens to those populist movements? Because they, they certainly pose, them, I would say, a bigger threat to the conservatives going forward than necessarily Labour does. I, I don't know what the future holds in terms of immigration experience in Britain, but in America, you know, one of the very early things that is going to happen with a Biden administration is a rollback of a lot of the Trump-related policies as it, uh, as it comes to the southern border. Uh, that's something that has always been, you know, it, it's no secret. It's something that uh, Biden has, uh, you know, said publicly that it's in all these, you know, bullet point lists of anticipated executive orders and the like. And obviously it's it's an area where the president can do a lot of pen and phone leadership uh, versus having to go through the legislative process, which in this uh, Washington as it currently looks like uh, is going to be, you know, totally ungovernable on anything but spending money. Um, that sets up a scenario though, where a lot of the border experts who I've been talking to in the last uh, week or so uh, including, uh, you know, folks who've you know been paying attention to this over the course of numerous administrations, are saying there's going to be a significant flow up from Mexico. Uh, people fleeing, you know, not just pandemic for pandemic-related reasons, but also job loss, et cetera. You know, one of the big things that happened uh, during the Trump era is that all that really did slow down, comparable to what the Obama administration had to deal with, um, and. It, it is uh, something that I think obviously played to the benefit of populists in 2016 in particular. Uh, what do you think about the role of immigration as, as kind of an issue that, uh, at least here in America, was not a dominant issue that lots of people were talking about this cycle, uh, but could have some real impact politically? How does that affect uh, the, the conversation around populism in terms of a resurgence of that issue? Well, I, th I think, as I mentioned in the book, immigration is the central issue for populism, um, even more so than political correctness and culture wars issues. So I think I would anticipate that if there is, as you suggest, uh, going to be a surge at the border, I mean, this is one of the kind of key things that could undo, uh, I think, Biden in a way, because I think it's very hard for him to uh, to stand firm on that that issue in the face of large segments of his party and, and of, of the medium. Uh, and, and so I think that's going to be a very interesting uh, test case. I mean, and again, this gets to the issue of the pandemic. You know, you say, why wasn't immigration an issue in this election? Well, one of the issues, one of the reasons is there simply are far fewer people crossing borders during a pandemic mm -hmm. than there will be in normal circumstances. So this actually freezes a lot of the fuel behind populism. And, and, and I think once the lid is back off that and you get immigration flowing again, then that can be politicized as an issue and it will be politicized by populists around Western Europe and North America. So yeah, I would definitely look for that as a key moment uh, following the pandemic as to when we might see a reemergence very much of the same dynamics we saw prior to 2016.
Your article at Unheard is called uh, Who Are the Real Shy Trumpers? Um, and in it, you write uh, uh, about this America American National Election Study pilot survey where you found that education level predicts, uh, which found that education level predicts less than 1% of the variation in whether a white person voted for Trump in 2016. By contrast, their feeling towards illegal immigrants on a zero to 100 thermometer predicts over 30% of the variation. So is part of the shy Trump factor here that you have relatively well off, you know, upper middle class, well-educated, suburban white people who basically are sympathetic to a more hardline or more restrictionist policy on immigration and are just, you know, when it comes to that issue or when it comes to other culture war issues, they're, they're just uncomfortable about voicing those when, you know, the group of ladies get together for wine and book club, uh, when, you know, the, the group of guys are hanging out together, you know, that that's just something they're uncomfortable voicing even to their friends. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, because most of what drives people's attitudes to immigration has to do with, uh, do you see change as loss or as excitement? Do you see difference as disorderly or as stimulating? And that's very kind of, it's about 50% hereditary. We know that from twin studies. These are deep psychological impulses, which are not, which are only partially tied to your level of education. And so most of the variation is going to be, when you take the population of university graduates, there's going to be huge variation within the university graduate population based on psychology, which is going to drive them towards one or the other of these positions. And that this is why doing something crude like taking just education or race and expecting that to sort of um, adjust your, your survey sample and give you a good poll, they're missing so much of it. And, I, and, and to be fair, I mean, Vox, there's a piece that came out of Vox by Dylan Matthews that more or less David Shore and others were saying, yeah, we now know that we are essentially correcting for demographics, but we're really not catching a lot of people who are, say, not trusting the media, not trusting politicians, even though they fit the demographics. And so the, 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 tra the challenge going forward for the pollsters will be, how do you weight a survey in such a way that you get these invisible demographics that aren't being captured by the simple ones? I am, uh, I'm sure, you know, not alone in my uh, level of surprise at the president's performance uh, among uh, a number of uh, minority cohorts in America uh, that certainly shocked a, a lot of folks in the media. Um, you know, I think I and others anticipated that his message would work well when it came to uh, the Cuban population. Uh, we saw some early signs of this in terms of, of you know, the uh, the FIU poll, which is kind of the gold standard of looking at Miami-Dade and, and uh, you know, the Cuban population there. You know, they had found last time around that, you know, the older Cubans like Trump, the younger Cubans liked Hillary. This time around, it looks like the all the Cubans liked Trump. It was just a matter of, of uh, varying degrees. Um, the, the thing that is uh, surprising, I think, to a lot of folks is uh, the president's performance among uh, Latinos, particularly in Texas. Uh, the Rio Grande Valley, you know, uh, you know, going for him uh, by a significant margin. Uh, we think of of someone like Congressman Will Hurd, who's held up as, you know, winning, 
very narrowly last time around, uh, you know, someone who uh, one of the most diverse districts uh, in the country uh, and the Republican who replaced him won by even more. And so it was one of these situations where all of these races that Republicans were supposed to be losing in the House because of these demographic issues turned the other way around. This is now a situation where, you know, you've a lot of Democrats hand wringing in the pages of The New York Times and elsewhere you know, why isn't this, why don't we have the coalition that we want, basically? Why did we get these upper income uh, white suburbanites who had maybe been, you know, culturally liberal, fiscally conservative Republicans um, in in previous years? uh, But why did we at the same time lose, you know, a lot of these middle and working class, uh, more diverse uh, demos that we wanted to retain? What's your thought process on that and and what goes into that? And, And do you think that that is something that Republicans can replicate with the kind of, of message that they had, uh, you know, in at least the lead up to the pandemic when it came to their approach to, to economic policy and the like. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple, couple things going on there. One is the issue of patriotism and national identity, which is, I think, a winner. And of course, the, uh, the George Floyd protests and riots that came after that, I think, were important in, in kind of catalyzing this. That is something where the, particularly the U.S. born, so if we, if we look at the Latino population, for example, we, it's not just uh, Rio Grande Valley and Cuba, it's actually across the country. Uh, you can look at California and a number of the races there amongst Asians as well, there was a swing towards Trump, that this appeal to a, a kind of patriotism um, is quite effective. And I think that that could be one part of, of, of the appeal. And the other thing too is, if we look at Europe and the U.S., Uh, One of the things you notice is pro-immigration wealthy voters care more about money and income and and the economy, whereas kind of anti-immigration low-income voters care in many cases more about immigration. So that trade is a it tends to be a winner for right populist or or right-wing parties. And and so for example in Britain the high income remain people who voted to stay in the European Union, but were conservative voters because they were high income. Very few of those people switched to the Labour Party, but a large number of work, white working class Brexiteers switched to the Conservatives from Labour. So it does seem, and similarly in the US in 2016, that it seems like the issue of immigration will mobilize anti-immigration voters, but it doesn't seem to mobilize pro-immigration wealthy voters as much. Uh, and I think this is one of the mistakes perhaps some of the pollsters have made, is that group hasn't shifted because they're voting more there. That group probably does vote their economic interests a little bit more, whereas the poor, poorer groups don't seem to be as inclined to do so. Talk to me a little bit about the effect, you mentioned George Floyd, of the defund the police argument, which has been the dominant conversation in Washington, D.C., since this election, many Democrats coming out and saying, uh, you know, most recently Ed Rendell, um, you know, obviously saying, uh, you know, the big thing that hurt us, the reason that, you know, Joe Biden underperformed in Philadelphia compared to what our expectations were is because of the way this defund the police narrative uh, played out, um, you know, something that, you know, Jim Clyburn brought it up, you know, a number of other, you know, Democrats uh, leaders have brought it up as being something that hurt them. And obviously, you know, along the Rio Grande Valley, there's a lot of, you know, cops and, and immigration border enforcement folks 
who are Hispanic and and don't do not like the idea of of uh, of any threat of defunding uh, what they do or or their jobs. Um, tell me a little bit about how that narrative played out, and do you think that's a long term problem for the Democratic cohort, uh, or was it kind of a temporary one, just given the dynamics that came out of the summer? Well, I think both the border and the defund are important. I mean, they were both important, I think, in the Rio Grande Valley, but you can look, for example, at uh, Latino, Asian, and African-American Trump voters in a couple of surveys I've, I've looked at, which show quite clearly that those non-white Trump voters are very similar to white Trump voters in their attitudes to, say, a question like, is BLM a dangerous movement? You know, 80%. Uh, of, of Asian, Latino Trump voters, and, and maybe 60% of African-American Trump voters are agreeing with that sentiment. Um, and I think on the border, similarly, you know, is illegal immigration a problem? Should you build a wall? All of these questions, very little difference between white Trump voters and minority Trump voters. And so I think there's also a, a tendency to underestimate the potency of some of these issues for minority uh, particularly conservatively minded minority voters who are very much on board with them. Whereas I think the view from New York and San Francisco is this, they would be horrified by this. But actually, I think Lusa Al-Garbi, uh, a very uh, interesting um, African-American writer who, who pointed this out and said, really, uh, those messages aren't heard as dog whistles by a lot of minority communities. They, they like the idea of law and order and security. Uh, and again, that sort of feeds into this overall theme that appealing to that kind of patriotism or national identity is probably a pretty wise strategy, at least for the Republicans. Mm -hmm. You know, there's going to be a whole movement in the coming years uh, that uh, tries to put this coalition back together in the absence of Donald Trump. You know, most uh, quickly, obviously, they're going to try to do the same thing in the midterms. 2022, you know, Republicans are going to be all about you know, this is the way, this is the path forward. You know, we almost got there this time without anywhere near the level of money, investment, effort in a lot of these seats. I mean, you know, if anything, you know, Republicans are are overjoyed about their, their outcomes in the House in particular, but a lot of them feel like, you know, had they spent money in 10 more seats uh, that they easily could have taken uh, the House, which is something no one thought even uh, remotely possible. As it stands, uh, you know, this is... Uh, Nancy Pelosi had basically signaled this was going to be her last two years as speaker, even before this. Um, there's a real anticipation from Republicans that are going to be able to have a very good midterm, and they're going to want to form that same coalition again. How is that possible to do in the absence of this outsized figure at the top of the ticket? Is it possible? And if they wanted to do that, what are the issues that they really ought to be stressing and the ones that they ought to be avoiding in order to basically build this back up again and, and make another run at it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be uh, very interesting. I think they have to focus on this appeal to um, patriotism and traditional notions of the nation, uh, including security at the border and policing and so on. I think that's going to be a very effective pitch to uh, increasingly culturally acculturated and assimilated minority groups. Um, now, I do think the Trump issue, to the extent that there's a clash over leadership of the party, um, that could be an issue for the Republicans, whereas I think for the Democrats, the issue is probably its left wing, you know, trying to vie for power. So each party probably has 
a sort of balancing act. I think in the case of the Republicans, if they can somehow, you know, if you look down ballot, they, they did a few points better than, than they did in the presidential election. I think if they can harness Trumpism, but perhaps under a new figure, I think they, because I actually don't think Trump, his, his particular persona is, is essential to explaining the Trump phenomenon. I actually think this is a much deeper cultural phenomenon. So if you can harness that energy, but perhaps with a different figure that doesn't have some of the minuses, I think uh, that would be very hard to, for the Democrats to beat. And that's going to be hard, though. I mean, because you don't have the same kind of unique appeal. I'm not sure that, you know, Josh Hawley and Christy Nome and, and Ron DeSantis can get the kind of crowds that, you know, uh, that the president does uh, when he goes out and people come out to see the rodeo. Um, <laughs> but, but I do but I do think that there is something there, which is interesting. If, if you rewind to 2012, I'm sure you're familiar with the autopsy that was written after that election where you had kind of the the Republican donor class effectively talking to the Republican, you know, professional class about, you know, why did this election go sideways? We thought Barack Obama was eminently beatable. You know, we ran a a candidate with, you know, very little baggage in in Mitt Romney relative to, you know, other potential candidates. You know, they, they felt like he was someone who was very ideal and he appealed to them because frankly he's he's kind of one of them you know he's basically a republican donor type you know um the they were very surprised at the outcome and the basic takeaway was we need to soften on immigration we've got to you know uh, embrace you know a lot of different you know approaches to try to take this issue off the table um it's bad for us it hurts us and i'm hardly the first person but you know, I and many others wrote about Donald Trump in the 2016 cycle as essentially the anti-autopsy candidate. He was doing everything wrong by measure of the autopsy. Uh, and then, of course, he won anyway. To me, that proof was cemented in this 2020 cycle, where, like, his approach was basically vindicated. The autopsy approach was was essentially dashed, you know, and the idea that, that, that his coalition... Um, was insufficient to to win nationally was would would hurt the party, um, and that the only reason he won last time around is because he was up against a very unpopular candidate in Hillary Clinton. You know, just clearly, it's very difficult to make that case as narrow as it is, and as and as well as Republicans did. So, what does that mean for the Republican Party going forward in terms of navigating this world where a lot of them had a ton of built-in assumptions that thought that. Basically, that 2012 autopsy was probably still right, and that you know Trump was a fluke. There were all sorts of fluky reasons to explain why he won in the first place. Now that the fluke argument is basically dismissed, what do you think that the leadership of the, of the GOP should take away from that in terms of how they talk about these issues and what issues they prioritize? Yeah, I think you're 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 absolutely right. I mean, we've seen two election cycles now in which. Um, Minority voters have been shifting uh, away from blue toward red uh, under the kind of messaging you just talked about. And I think if you look at the electorate, there have been studies and surveys that show most voters are kind of centrist on the economy. And particularly for Republican voters, they're right on the culture. And I, and I think it, for the Republican Party, they probably want to pitch themselves just to the right, perhaps on the economy, not too far to the right. And play up issues around um, 
nationalism and patriotism, including immigration. I mean, this is the formula I think that Boris Johnson in Britain went with and has worked very well. The, the British conservatives are now as working class a party as the Labour Party, which would have been unheard of. Uh, and that builds a very solid coalition because most there aren't that many libertarian voters who are very liberal on culture and liberal on economics. Trump's success to some extent, he didn't follow through entirely, but in some ways he was a more high spending, slightly left wing on, on the economy, infrastructure, he didn't follow through on that. But if you've got a candidate that could provide that with being very tough on border security, uh, immigration, national traditional forms of national identity i think that is a very hard combination to beat and i think uh, david goodhart as a commentator here made the point that it's much easier for the right to move left on economics than the left to move right on culture and so the democrats will find it very difficult to move um, to where the median voter is on an issue like immigration or the nation that's that's a really interesting point because as soon as you say it, uh, uh, that makes total sense to me. It's so difficult for uh, any kind of Democrat to be within that coalition and voice traditionalist conservative ideas about small C conservative, about family life, guns, you know, expectations in terms of being you know, anti-woke within the educational experience, child rearing and the like. I mean, you know, basically you've got Joe Manchin from West Virginia, you've got uh, Kirsten Sinema uh, from Arizona. And really other than that, you know, you don't have a lot of culturally traditionalist, uh, you know, representation within the the democratic uh, national, uh, you know, federal cohort. You know, granted you have state level officials and you have a handful of members of Congress uh, who are still in that category, but it's really hard to be uh, that type of candidate now in a way it didn't used to be. For instance, I remember, you know, Mark Warner, the uh, senator from uh, the senior senator from Virginia, uh, you know, uh, relatively popular uh, governor when he, when he first ran uh, for the Senate, uh, or I guess the second time he ran because the first time he failed, he, you know, went to NASCAR events, you know, emphasized that he was going to be a, you know, a pro-gun member, you know, distanced himself from a lot of different lefty radicalism. Uh, when Tim Kaine, who's the junior senator, also a Democrat, uh, you know, first ran for the governorship, uh, he was actually still pro-life in terms of his attitude towards abortion. He, you know, said he wasn't going to change uh, the laws and that kind of thing. <laughs> you know, it, in other words, they had kind of some some culturally, if not conservative, then definitely centrist uh, or moderate leanings, that's totally absent now from their appeal. And, and certainly in terms of the ads they run, uh, you know, when they're running for office, you don't see any of that. Do you think that that's something that could change or that Democrats will try to change that? Or is the hold of this more lefty cultural agenda so strong on that party that they're not going to be able to navigate this moment in a way that brings those folks back uh, into their coalition, that they'll have to find different ways to get them. Yeah, I think that it's going to be very difficult because I think the U.S. left is kind of the epicenter of this woke political correctness, particularly in the activist ranks. Um, that's why a lot of people are in the party, and you know, and so I think that really constrains the room to maneuver. Something similar you see it in Europe. For some Scandinavian countries, have a more kind of conservative left, like in Denmark and Norway. They've been very sort of strict on, on issues to do with, say, immigration. But um, 
I think in Britain, what you saw under Corbyn was, was an inability to navigate that. Now the Labour Party under Starmer, he's trying to sidestep these issues because he knows that those are toxic. So something like, you know, defund the police, he, he came out very quickly and said no to that. Um, but his, you know, his party's putting a lot of pressure on him. So he's, he's, he's finding it tough to stay in that position to keep sweet with it. So he did take the knee, but he kind of criticized the protests. So, yeah. But I think in the U.S. that's going to be even harder because I think the, the atmosphere is such that it's just, yeah. so it's going to be very difficult for Biden or somebody like him to keep those forces at bay. I have to ask you a question about uh, libertarians. The, uh, you know, there's that famous quadrant thing that shows up all the time on social media where people are always pointing out how few people are in that one, you know, uh, quadrant of, of that represents uh, uh, mostly libertarians. Um, it seems to me that they have virtually no constituency at the moment, um, that there's just there's no interest in, in cutting government spending. There's, uh, you know, fiscal conservatism. Perhaps you can you can find support for cutting taxes, but you're not going to find support for a lot of other things. There's some different, you know, uh, rifle shot issues where they have prevailed when it comes to uh, drug, drug decriminalization, some aspects of criminal justice reform uh, and the like. Uh, but for the most part, it seems like there's just not the electoral constituency. They have to win in the courts, basically, in order to uh, to advance their arguments. Um, do you think that that's something that is temporary or is it going to change at some point? And is a big part of the problem with that, that there seems to be a natural, I don't revulsion is too strong a word. Um, th- there seems to be a natural tendency on the part of libertarians to shy away from messages of nationalism and patriotism and tradition as being part of something that they accept. Yeah, I mean, I think the libertarian heyday might have been in the Reagan uh, era, you know, uh, when stagflation was still something people talked about. (laughs) Um, But I think now, you know, so much of the conversation is around, you know, death of despair and the erosion of community and the loss of solidarity and, and it's all about fragmentation and fracturing. I just think the mood in national electorates is, is, is a craving towards more solidarity of some kind. So I just don't see that kind of a, a situation as propitious for libertarianism. I mean, the one area where it is very relevant, of course, is freedom of expression, free speech, those sorts mm-hmm. of issues. Um, and there, yes, I, I think probably some version of libertarianism is very relevant, but that on its own is probably not enough uh, to keep it vital. So I would have thought it would have to partner in with what seems to be this much stronger kind of communitarian national conservatism that, that seems to be popping up uh, across the West. So uh, let's go out on this. You are someone who pays attention to you know a lot of the different you know trends and and to the people who. Uh, can connect with them. Are you particularly interested in any politician at this moment, right or left, who do you think can take advantage of this particular interesting political moment where you have kind of a weak new presidential administration coming in that already looks to be, you know, headed up against brick walls when it comes to uh, the Congress and, and the like, uh, and and frankly, an, an aging leadership, you know, in the sense that, you know, Nancy Pelosi and uh, and Joe Biden 
you know, are probably not going to be leading this party in as recently as, you know, four years from now, maybe, uh, you know, and, uh, and that's a situation that I think, you know, not a lot of parties find themselves in typically. Is this what, who do you think is kind of best positioned on either the right or the left or both to take advantage of this? Right. Well, it's, it's very difficult to know which of the new candidates, whether it, you know, the names obviously on people's lips are, are Hawley and Rubio uh, and, and you know, perhaps Tucker Carlson. I don't know. But I mean, despite what he says, but, you know, these, these <laughs> figures. He'll um, say no all the way up until he says yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that, uh, you know, because really with the Biden administration, I think there are a couple of things to watch out for. One is post-pandemic when uh, immigration becomes an issue at the border again. And the second is challenges from the left of his party that push him into positions that are deeply unpopular with the country. And, and I think those kinds of dynamics are going to spark a kind of, a, you know, really a moment of truth. Now, who is going to be best placed on the Republican side to, to, to take advantage of that? I mean, I still think somebody like a, a Hawley or a Rubio, but, but again, if they take the road that is just about having an industrial policy and talking about economics and ducking a confrontation on issues like national history and the border, I think that's not going to be successful because ultimately it is those other issues that, that are really galvanizing for uh, a lot of voters. And, and so it'll just be up to somebody who has the guts to, to push back on the speech restrictions and on the sort of national history question and at the same time articulate that economic vision. Um, and I'm just not sure who is going to emerge, but I think it'll be one of those figures. What about on the left? Do you have someone in mind, or do you think that this is a situation where, you know, maybe one of these young progressives might figure out a way to jujitsu this moment? <laughs> I just don't see how it can be done easily in the U.S. context. You, you'd have to have somebody who is willing to really defy the activist base. To some extent, Keir Starmer here in Britain has done it a little bit, but he's He's doing a very, you know, a high wire act, and I'm not sure he can pull it off. I just think it would be that much harder in the U.S., which is really the epicenter of this woke culture, to, to actually try and defy that part of your base is, I don't know, I, I would love to see it because I, I think you could have a very interesting candidate. I just don't know who it would be right now. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have any ideas. I, you know, I don't, but I also think that, you know, in some ways uh, this feels to me like that moment where, you know, uh, you don't see anybody who who can manage anything, and then uh, Bill Clinton, you know, strolls off from uh, from stage left. Um, Eric Kaufman, uh, the author of White Shift, thanks so much for t- taking the time to join me again today. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me on. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. We'll be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray.